But anyways, um, I'm, I'm glad that we're all here. We've all come to worship the Lord, and, and that's a good thing. And so let's make the most of this time. Um, good stuff. We have got, we've got good stuff ahead of us here. Now, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. And I know it's very repetitive for me to say that every week, but every week we have new people usually, and so it's like they have no idea where we've been, and so we just have to endure that. But we have been working our way through the book of Acts, and um, we've been studying for the last, I guess last week we began, or maybe two weeks ago we began, or three weeks ago we began looking at uh, the man named Stephen, and uh, we've been kind of studying his ministry and his character, and last week we sort of engaged the first part of his sermon or speech. So at this point in the biblical narrative, I just got to give you a little context so you know where we're going, but at this point in the narrative, three Hellenistic synagogues and a group of false witnesses dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Stephen was this great gospel preacher. I mean, he just preached Christ from the Old Testament, as we'll see today, and he just, man, he was a bold man, and he stood his ground, and, you know, he debated these Hellenistic Jews. He was a Hellenist himself, a Greek-speaking Jew, and he stood his ground, and he really, uh, no one could oppose him because he had this divine wisdom, and, uh, and so he just defeated those who came against him and tried to out-debate him, but we've got men who have risen up against him, and, and they fashioned some false witnesses, and, and they've taken him before the Sanhedrin, and they're claiming that he blasphemed against God, Moses, the law, and the temple, and uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, I believe it was, asked Stephen if the charges were true. They kind of, false witnesses said, this is what he's done, and he's said all these things, and he's preaching these blasphemous things, and then the high priest gives him the opportunity to respond, and... Um, and what he did was he, he went really on the offensive. Instead of trying to defend, I think, himself, he really didn't have any interest in getting himself freed or anything. He only wanted to defend the truth claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he kind of goes on this offensive. He kind of flips it on him and goes on this offensive. And he, he began by sort of retelling Israel's history and at the same time that he's sort of going over their history, which was a common way to, to preach Christ, even in those days to the Jews, you have to go all the way back, you know, to where they became a nation and, and thread Christ through all of that because Christ is threaded through all of that and all those promises and stuff. And so he's sort of doing that, but he's sort of on the offensive because as he's narrating their history and their storyline, he's highlighting their sinful tendencies uh, which ultimately um, led to their rejection of Jesus Christ. You know, they had this history of rejecting the prophets and all of the leaders that God raised up for them, and even with the, you know, Moses and Joseph and, and the prophets and judges and all these men and, and even some gals in there that God raised up to lead. And, and for the most part, the Jews have always rejected their leadership. There's been times where they submitted and did what they were supposed to do, but most of the time they were rejecting and standing in opposition and all of that. And so he's sort of highlighting those sinful tendencies, which ultimately culminated in the rejection of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus? Jesus was one that God had sent, obviously the Messiah, but he had sent as a he, he had been sent by the Father as the Redeemer, as the ultimate deliverer, 
uh, the fulfillment of the law and all prophecy, and how did they deal with him? The same way that they dealt with Joseph, the same way that they dealt with Moses and and what have you, and even worse, because they fully rejected Jesus and nailed him to a cross. So he's kind of highlighting those things. Uh, Last week, we sort of looked at how uh, Israel was steeped in idolatry. Um, You know, they worshipped the land. I mean, they lived in the promised land, and to live there was a sign of salvation and a sign of God's blessing. And if you were a Jew uh, and a true Jew in the mind and heart, that's where you would live. And so they sort of exalted the land and they exalted the temple up and they just basically had taken these beautiful things that God had given them, okay, to lead them to God, to worship and to gratitude to God. And they exalted those things above God and worshiped those things. And Stephen really pulverized them last week, as we noticed. He just pointed out that the land isn't all that you think it is. I mean, it's, it's like he uses this example of Abraham to show them. And Abraham, man, when he met with God, he was in Ur. He was in total pagan country, had nothing to do with the promised land. And Stephen's big point last week was that, look, man, it's not all about the promised land or the temple. It's not just about those things because, look, Abraham was met by God somewhere else. Why was God and Abraham yoked and joined? Why did God meet with him? Because Abraham was a man of faith. Okay, so faith is the bigger deal here. Believing God, loving God, worshiping God. Faith is the catalyst for all these things. And a person of faith can meet with God anywhere. It's not just a promised land kind of thing. It's not just about the temple, you know. And so he uses the story of Abraham to sort of rebuke them in a way to show them that, man, the land doesn't mean jack without faith. Look at Abraham's example. And so that was a really interesting time that we had. And... uh, Today, we're going to be moving forward. We're going to be looking at, uh, let's see, we're going to be looking at 7, 8 to 16. That'll be our next section of study, and we'll see how um, Stephen continues to illustrate and, and show them their history and to draw out those sinful tendencies and things like that. And he's going to point them to the patriarchs today and to Joseph, which are I don't know about you guys, I've always just loved reading the story of Joseph in the latter part of Genesis. Just such a cool section and very long, right? I think Joseph probably gets more attention in Scripture than anyone else, maybe besides the Lord with the Gospels and then all the epistles and stuff. But man, Joseph, he gets how many chapters that are end up devoted to his storyline and stuff. Major, major, major stuff going on there. So we're going to kind of look at that. We're going to let Stephen kind of lead us and more importantly, the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's see, we're going to read 7, 8 to 16 out loud together. Well, I'll read it and you follow. And then, uh, yeah, that was weird. And then I'll pray and then we'll study it. Uh, there it is. Fans making my pages flap. And it feels good, though. This thing's like a mini tornado. All right. All right, what are we looking at? But I will judge the nation, blah, 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 blah. Okay, verse 8. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. He's still speaking of Abraham. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when 
Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on the first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. 14, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Verse 16, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Father, as we begin to study your word, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord, put away with all distractions. This is an amazing passage of scripture, just as all are, and, um, and we need to, to be attentive during this moment, and we need your Holy Spirit to enable us to be attentive. We need your Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts and eyes and ears that we may hear your wondrous, glorious truth and be changed by it, God. We have not come here just to massage our intellects or just to gain knowledge. God, we have come here, yes, to gain knowledge, but to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit according to that knowledge that we may become brothers and sisters stronger in the faith, more bold for your gospel, changed forever, God, on fire for you, wanting to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is what you have called us to do. That is the primary purpose behind gospel preaching And so, God, may that be so today, Lord. May we rest in you now. May we enjoy your presence. May we hear directly from you. Guard my lips and tongue. May you speak through me. Thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful time of worship. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Okay, let's begin with 8. It says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision... And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Here Stephen reminds his hearers of Genesis chapter 17, 18, and 21. God made a promise to Abraham that his offspring would possess the promised land, and that every nation would be blessed through Jesus who would come through Abraham's lineage. The sign of that promise was circumcision. When Sarah, Abraham's wife, gave birth to Isaac, Abraham upheld the covenant that God had made with him by circumcising his newly born son on the eighth day. Isaac grew up and got married and became the father of Jacob. Jacob's wives and concubines bore him 12 sons, and God chose them to be Israel's overseers. Uh, They were called the 12 heads or patriarchs of Israel. Their names are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. The 12 patriarchs were held in very high regard or very high esteem by Stephen's listeners, and then throughout all of history. I mean, these were the guys that oversaw the tribes at really Israel's incarnation when it really began uh, to become a, a nation or a country of its own. So these were kind of like the presidents over each little district or tribe. And so these guys were held in very, very high regard, especially by the Sanhedrin and those that were listening to Stephen's sermon or apologetic, if you will. The religious leaders 
uh, that were standing or probably seated before Stephen because he would have been standing and, and giving this defense. These religious leaders, the Sanhedrin that were present there, saw themselves as the acting heads of the nation of Israel. They uh, really believed to themselves that they were serving God and the nation of Israel in a similar way to that of the patriarchs. We're talking about a different era, we're talking about a different timeline, but for the most part, the Sanhedrin bore that same responsibility that the patriarchs bore many, many centuries before. The Sanhedrin was a larger body of 72 members, but they were overseeing the nation of Israel in spiritual terms and other terms, just as those heads were. So uh, the parallel there is that the patriarchs and the Sanhedrin are very similar. They're like serving in the same capacity. Now look at verses 9 to 10 with me. And I must remind all of us and myself because it would be easy to get caught up in Stephen's you know, little narration and then just to teach through Genesis and all of that. And that's not at all his point. He's trying to highlight certain things from their story. So you can't spend a whole lot of time on uh, the history. You just have to kind of cruise over it. So let's look at 9 and 10, and it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin of how the patriarchs turned against one of their own. Joseph. God gifted Joseph with special talents and abilities that his brothers did not have or possess. God told Joseph uh, that he would someday be a ruler. And if you've read the story, you've heard about his dreams and how he was exalted and his brothers would bow before him and that he would be the head over nations and all these things. And so God had communicated pretty regularly to Joseph that he was not only special, but that someday he would actually be a ruler. Now, his brothers became jealous and despised him. And one of the reasons is because Joseph pretty much told him what was going to happen. Hey, bros, one of these days, you're going to be on your knees before me. I don't know about you, but that wouldn't go over very well. Uh, I have siblings, and if my sister had said something like, to me, like that to me, I'd probably smack her with a flip-flop or something. But for the most part, he wasn't shy in communicating his blessedness. And his brothers were very, very jealous of him, even despised him. And they plotted for how to kill him. I mean, that's how much they despised him. They did not like him or his boasting, and they plotted for how to kill him. But they ended up selling him to Ishmaelites, who later sold him into slavery in Egypt. Most of us have heard that storyline. Now, despite his brother's rejection, God was with Joseph and what? The text says, rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who ended up making him ruler over Egypt and over his entire household. By illustrating the account of Joseph's betrayal, Stephen is showing how Israel's first leaders, the patriarchs, opposed God. Opposition to God is a major theme in Stephen's polemic, and it was a major theme in apostolic preaching. Stephen wants to prove to his listeners 
He wants to prove to them that they have consistently opposed God by opposing the men that God had sent to lead them throughout all of the centuries. Later, he will show how Israel um, opposed God by rejecting Moses uh, and, and the law. And then in verses 51 to 53, and that's towards the end of his polemic or his argument, his sermon, he will show how they opposed God by rejecting Jesus. So he's sort of building a case. He's showing, look, man, you had this leader that was sent to you, Joseph, and look at how you dealt with him. And worse, this was the leaders. These were the 12 tribe heads. These were the main guys. These were the El Presidentes. Look at how they dealt with this anointed, blessed leader that God sent. And he'll parallel that with Moses, and then he'll make some more of a case there, and then he'll bring it all to a conclusion when he says, you've done the same thing with Jesus. That's his whole whole point. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Sanhedrin was overseeing the people at this time, just as the patriarchs had been overseeing the people centuries before. And they erred with Jesus, just as the patriarchs had erred with Joseph. Now, there are a lot of parallels in our text, uh, more particularly between Joseph and and Jesus. And I believe this is primarily why Stephen used Joseph as an example, or more particularly, why he highlighted uh, the events of Joseph's life, like the event of his betrayal, then his triumph and exaltation. Now, listen to what MacArthur wrote about this particular text. It's really interesting, and it'll lead into this kind of volley of comparative things that's really helpful. MacArthur said this, although Stephen waits until the conclusion of his sermon to openly declare that Jesus is the Messiah. Even in his historical summation, Stephen gives glimpses of Christ. Joseph's life, in many ways, was analogous to Christ. Now, I've come up with 11 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And uh, I want to go over those things with you just briefly, and I'm going to have him put them up on the screen. Now, I know that there's probably more parallels between Joseph and Jesus, and, and you're probably going to sit there and listen to 11 and go, I've got 29, Pastor Phil. Email them to me. I'd love to hear what you come up with. I mean, that's really, really cool. But I've got some that are really pertinent to this whole case that Stephen's building here, and I'd like to go over these things with you guys. Let's look at number one. Can we get that up there? Very good. And some of these are going to be really basic and, and foundational, but they're very, very, very important. Joseph was a true Jew, descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, descended from Jacob, Genesis 30, 24. Jesus is a true Jew, descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, descended from Jacob, uh, Matthew 2 1 to 16, if you look at the lineage of Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's very important because in order to be the Messiah or anything else of any relevance whatsoever, you had to be a true Jew. Stephen himself was not a true Jew. He was a Hellenist. The men that made a case against um, Stephen were not true Jews in this sense. They weren't descended from those three, and that's what it took to be a true Jew. You had to come from those 
three men. Those men were really the first patriarchs and the foundation for the nation. And so it's very, very important that we know that Jesus met those requirements, that he was a Jew in the truest sense because he was descended from those three men. Very important. Number two, Joseph was set apart by God for special blessing. Genesis 49:22 to 26. Jesus was set apart by God for special blessing. Matthew 1:21. Number 3, Joseph possessed special gifts and talents. Genesis 37:5 to 9. Jesus possessed special gifts and talents. Acts 2:22. And if you go through the Gospels, you see how he was healing people and multiplying bread and casting out demons. And he just had these incredible divine gifts Jesus had. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Four, Joseph enjoyed special favor from his father, Genesis 37, 3. That may have been one of the things that chapped the hides of his brothers because he got the special tunic and he had special, his father had a special love for him, right? You remember, you've read the story. Jesus enjoyed special favor from his father, Matthew 3, 17. And then there's a case where we hear God himself authenticate his love for his son and show how he had this favor by saying, this is my beloved son. So both of them had this great favor from God. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, Genesis 37, 11. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus, Mark 15, 10. When you read the release, this narrative of the release of, um, what's his name? Help me out here. Barabbas. I don't want to call him Barnabas because that was a good guy. I heard a guy preach an entire sermon on Barabbas calling him Barnabas. And I was like, that darn Barnabas, he wasn't a son of encouragement. He was hellbound. I forgot what I was going to say. They were jealous of him. Now, if you read that, if you read that case of Barnabas, it says in one of the gospel accounts that the reason why they were turning Jesus over and trading him for, uh, I said it, I said Barnabas, for Barabbas, the reason why they were doing it was out of envy or out of jealousy. And so isn't that interesting that they were jealous of Joseph and that's why they mistreated him. And then his... Uh, later date contemporaries, the Sanhedrin was ultimately jealous over Jesus, and that's why they dealt with him the way that they did. Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver by his own brothers. Genesis 37, 28. Jesus was sold unto death for 30 pieces of silver by his own apostle. Matthew 27, 3. Very interesting parallel. Joseph was turned over to pagans by the patriarchs, the Ishmaelites. They were pagans. They were not Jewish by descent. Genesis 37, 28. Jesus was turned over to pagans by the Sanhedrin. To who? The Romans. Matthew 27, 2. Joseph was condemned to prison by the testimony of a false witness, Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39, 1 to 20. Jesus was condemned to death by the testimonies of false witnesses, Mark 14, 57. Number nine, God delivered Joseph from all his afflictions and imprisonment, Acts 7, 10. We just read that. God delivered Jesus from all his afflictions and from the imprisonment of death through the resurrection. I love that, through the resurrection, Acts 2, 23 
to 24. 10. Pharaoh exalted Joseph by making him second in command over his kingdom and household. Acts 7.10. We read that. God exalted Jesus by seating him at his right hand, making him the leader and savior. Acts 5.31. And our last one, 11. And I think that there's probably 100. Joseph delivered his sinful, and this, this is key, Joseph delivered his sinful brothers from physical death by bringing them to Egypt where there was food. Genesis 45, 16 to 20. Jesus, Jesus delivers his brothers from spiritual death by bringing them to himself. Hebrews 2, 17. Aren't those parallels amazing? Do you suspect that Joseph is a foreshadow of the coming Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, if you stood them next to each other, other than their physical appearances, their lives were so much alike. The way they were blessed, the way that they uh, were viewed by God and anointed by God and used by God, rejected by men and all these things. The parallels are staggering. And as I said, I suspect that the reason uh, why Stephen used Joseph as an example was because of those parallels. Now, he wanted his hearers to make the connection while they were listening to him narrate between Joseph and Jesus. And some of them probably did make those connections. Many of them there knew enough about Jesus to be able to say to themselves, well, he kind of went through the same things as Joseph. That doesn't mean that they believed. But what he's doing is he's illustrating Joseph and at the same time inferring Jesus. Basically, what is Joseph doing? He's really preaching the gospel from the Old Testament through the example of Joseph in many, many ways. And I think some of the people present were picking up on it. And quite frankly, some of them were getting more and more agitated and angry while he was preaching. Now, Stephen also reminded his listeners of the terrible famine that struck the land after Joseph was rejected. Look at 11. Now there came a famine. There came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. Joseph's primary duty in Egypt was to amass food and supplies for the coming famine that was foretold in Pharaoh's dream. The famine would strike the whole region, affecting multitudes of people. The places hardest hit uh, were really outside of Egypt, like Canaan to the north, which was where Joseph's family uh, lived. The famine became so bad that all of Joseph's family, large family back there in Canaan, uh, they were all affected and even afflicted by it. They couldn't find food everywhere. Now, interestingly, the famine struck after Joseph was betrayed and rejected by his brothers, the patriarchs. The famine may have been an act of divine judgment against his brothers for their mistreatment of God's anointed one, Joseph. The Bible says in several places that God uses famine to discipline the disobedient. 
Some of those places where it's mentioned are Psalm 105, 16, Ezekiel 5, 16 to 17, Ezekiel 14, 30 and 21, uh, Jeremiah 24, 10, Jeremiah 27, 8. If you go back and look at those, and it might be hard to capture all of them because I'm narrating fast, you can go online and get this sermon and do the research. But if you look at all of them, man, it's like, oh, this was happening? Boom, God lays down a famine on these people. Boom, God lays down a famine in Canaan. Boom, God lays down a famine. God does use nature. He controls it. He steers it. He directs it. He brings rain. He, you know, withholds the rain. He moves the wind. I mean, he is sovereign over all things, and he can most certainly use natural disaster and things like that, even stirring things up. There's passages where it talks about him stirring up tornadoes on the people and wiping them out and judging them. And so it's very, very possible that the famine was a direct result of their disobedience, and it's God's way of punishing them. Now, the Psalm 105 example of this is prime, it's particularly interesting because it is tied directly to the famine of Joseph's day. Psalm 105.15 says that in the early days of Israel, God issued a warning. He said, do not touch or harm my anointed ones and prophets. That was God's warning to his own people and to the surrounding nations. Joseph fit into that category. He was one of God's anointed ones. He was prophetic. And he was touched and harmed by his own brothers. In verse 16, it says that God brought a famine on the land. And then in 17, I'm talking about 105 here, Psalm 105. Then in 105, 17 to 23, it talks about Joseph's betrayal, Joseph's slavery, Joseph's imprisonment, Joseph's release, his exaltation, and the rescue of his family. Friends, I think that it's clear that the famine that struck Jacob's household in Canaan was an act of divine chastening, judgment, punishment. Listen to this parallel. Jesus said that Israel's rejection of him would cost her dearly, that she would be judged, Matthew 23 uh, 38 to 39 and 24, 1 to 2. Now listen to what happened later on after Christ. In 66 AD, the Jews began a rebellion against Rome. In 69 AD, Vespasian was made emperor of Rome and gave his son Titus the special honor and privilege of delivering the final death blows to the rebellious Jews and their capital city. According to the Wars of the Jews, books, book number six, Josephus notes that on the eighth day of the Roman month Luz, the ramps were finished and Titus ordered the battering rams brought up and made ready for an assault on the city and temple. As soon as the walls were breached, several months later in 70 AD, a Roman military force of about 30,000 troops under the command of Titus marched into Jerusalem and began a systematic slaughter of the Jews, and they began the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, exactly as Jesus had foretold 40 years prior. The Romans brutally slaughtered an estimated 600,000 people in Jerusalem, including many of the Passover visitors who had been trapped there for the 143 days during the Roman siege. 
many of the people who were not killed by Roman soldiers were shipped off to the gladiatorial games, to the Roman mines and diamond mines and gold mines, and otherwise exiled from Judea and scattered throughout the Roman Empire and other nations. By the year 73 A.D., all traces of a self-ruling Jewish nation had completely disappeared. What is Stephen doing? He's illustrating how their disobedience with Joseph brought judgment and famine, which is a parallel to what they are going to receive, his hearers, right in front of him for how they treated Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus foretold it. It's going to happen. There's not going to be a stone of this temple that is unturned. They're going to get all the golden Jews out of it. It is going to be wasted. Forty years after Jesus made that declaration, it happened. The Romans annihilated that place. They trashed it. Why did Stephen mention the famine that followed Joseph's rejection? Why did he remind the Sanhedrin what happened? He wanted them to know that judgment befell upon the patriarchs for rejecting Joseph and that judgment would befall upon them for rejecting Jesus. Stephen believed the prophetic words of Christ. He knew that judgment was coming and he sought to warn them by reminding them of what happened in the past. But he doesn't leave them with only the negative he doesn't leave them without hope. Look at 12 to 14. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, that's the patriarchs, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, about 75 persons in all. Here Stephen points his listeners to the place and to the person who could rescue the patriarchs. There was grain in Egypt. You need grain to make bread, and bread can sustain physical life. The person who controlled the grain was Joseph. As I said, Stephen is preaching the gospel here. First, he makes his listeners aware of their sin. Like the patriarchs with Joseph, the Sanhedrin had rejected Jesus. Then he speaks of judgment. God sent a famine upon the patriarchs, and God will send judgment upon you. And we see how it came by looking at history. And then he pointed to the one who could rescue the patriarchs, the one who did rescue them, to Joseph, who was the controller of the grain, and more importantly, a foreshadow of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is what? The bread of life. You see the parallel that he's making here? You see the parallels that he's making here? He is preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin. He's pointing them to Joseph, who is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Man. Now, Stephen's approach was very subversive, but he left nothing to chance. He put in a safeguard just in case his hearers could not make the connections between the patriarchs, Joseph, themselves, and Jesus. As I said, in verses 51 to 53, he declared to them very boldly and plainly that they had betrayed and murdered the righteous one. He's speaking of Jesus. Now, 
Stephen's desire was for his countrymen to respond to Jesus as the patriarchs and Jacob had responded to Joseph. Look at verses 15 to 16. Here's how they responded. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And it wasn't that quick. Isn't that weird? It's like he went down there and then he died. Well, how did he benefit from that? Stephen's in a hurry here. Jacob went, it's funny, when I read that, I thought, man, that stinks. He went down there, he got rescued, but then he immediately died. No, he didn't die that quick. 15, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He went down there and lived for a while, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Jacob and his sons knew that their survival depended upon Joseph in Egypt. They knew that without him they would perish. And so they received his gracious offer and packed up their belongings and families and went to him in Egypt. In a really, really cool physical way, the rejected one became their savior. It is similar with Jesus, but far more profound on Jesus' side. Jesus came as the savior And yet he was rejected and despised by men. His people turned against him, very similar to the patriarchs with Joseph. He was sold out. He was tried at night by the Sanhedrin. He was found guilty. He was handed over to evil men, and they put him to death on a cross. But as Peter said, he was the stone that the builders rejected, but God made him the chief cornerstone. You see, Joseph and Jesus are alike in many ways, but they are also extraordinarily different. Joseph gave his brethren food to satisfy their physical needs. Jesus gives himself as the bread of life, and he satisfies our deepest needs. Joseph saved his brethren from starvation. Jesus saves his brethren from their sins, from due judgment, from damnation. Joseph saved his brethren from the pangs of hunger. Jesus saves his brethren from the pangs of death. Joseph's deliverance lasted until either the food ran out or until he died, and it really did only last until then because he passed away and a new Pharaoh came in and then it all ended. All the blessedness ended. Jesus' deliverance is everlasting. Why? Because he's incorruptible and indestructible. You see, what he offers isn't a temporary fix. It's everlasting. What Joseph offered was good but it could only last a lifetime. What Jesus offers endures forever in him because he is incorruptible and indestructible. Let me ask you guys this. Do you know that your survival depends on Jesus? Do you know that without him, you will perish? 
Do you know that without Him, you will spend eternity apart from God? You thought about those things? You see, Jacob and the patriarchs, if they hadn't gone to Egypt, they would have perished physically. Without Christ, we will perish spiritually. Never enjoying the presence of God again. The God who sustains all life. The God who gives happiness and joy. The God who gives provision. The God who gives the breath of life. Not only will a person not be close to God or in any proximity whatsoever to Him, but they will endure everlasting damnation and destruction, judgment. We're gnashing teeth as the eternal loop on Pandora, where the worm never dies, eternally consuming those who are there, where there is no water for an incredible desert thirst. See, not only are people separated from God forever, who is the author and perfecter of our faith through Christ and through the giver of life, but damnation and punishment await. Do you know that your survival depends on Jesus? Do you know that without Him, you will perish? Lastly, when Jacob and the patriarchs died, they were given honorable burials. Their bodies were taken to Shechem, where they were buried in the tomb that had been bought by their great-great-grandpa, Abraham. Some say that Stephen made an error here because other texts seem to say something different, but there are very, very good explanations out there. Uh, that shed light on the subject. And it would be very foolish for us to claim that a man like Stephen, who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, would make some sort of a biblical error. I mean, we all believe that the Bible is without error, right? And so what Stephen is saying is the truth. It's just a different way of expressing the truth. So I do not believe there is any error, and I'm not going to go into all the explanations. What I do want you to notice is this. In Ecclesiastes 6.3, Solomon wrote, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Solomon tells us that a dishonorable burial is one of the worst possible things that a person could receive in his culture, in Jewish culture. Proverbs 2.22 says that the wicked are cut off from the land. Being cut off would result in a dishonorable burial. The unrepented would not be buried with their families and kinsmen, And that was an unimaginable disgrace in that culture. Stephen tells us that the patriarchs received honorable burials. Why? They were placed in their family 
tombs, the tombs that Abraham had purchased from the sons of Hamer, either in Machpelah or Shechem, one of those two places. They received honorable burial. Stephen tells us that. He tells us that. He shows us that. And yet, their rejection and betrayal of Joseph was without a doubt a grievous sin and a breach of God's covenant. The patriarchs were under the judgment of God and they were headed for not only a dishonorable burial, but everlasting disgrace. But by the grace of God shown through their brother, they were reconciled to him and brought back under the covenant. God removed their disgrace and restored them to honor. I believe Stephen was being very, very strategic here. I believe he wanted his hearers to know that rejecting Jesus meant disgrace, but reconciliation to him through repentance and faith could not only bring salvation, but honor. Jesus honors those who honor him. The most pertinent question I could have for you today is this. Are you like the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin? Have you rejected Jesus while clinging to your sin and idolatry? Are you like the patriarchs before they were reconciled to their brother under the wrath and judgment of God? Are you still in Canaan? Are you still steeped in those Canaanite practices of faithlessness, greed, consumerism, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, adultery, drugs, and drunkenness. You see, that's what Canaan represents. Where are we at? The great question again becomes, some of us, I believe, are still entombed in Canaan and yet Jesus cries aloud, rise and come out. Come out of that land. Do you understand that he's made a way that you don't have to stay in Canaan? Jacob didn't have to stay and perish there. A way was made for him to be saved. And Jesus Christ offers the same thing. I believe some of us are probably still there. Why haven't you made Jacob's journey? What are you waiting for? I remember thinking this years ago and hearing the gospel preached. And, and I, one of the things that I kept saying to myself was someday, someday I'll make that journey. I don't want to do it now. I love my sin. I love my debauchery. I love, I love all of that junk. I love Canaan. It's all I've ever known. And when I would hear the gospel, I, I would say, someday, maybe someday, Lord willing. And then we have to ask ourselves, what if... Famine takes our life. What if judgment comes as swiftly as it did in 70 A.D.? What then? 
You see, someday doesn't work. Someday is not an insurance policy. To tarry on repenting and, and, and trusting in Jesus Christ is, is one of the biggest mistakes that a person could ever possibly make. You have no guarantee of the next day or the day after that or five or ten minutes from now. For crying out loud, I had a kidney stone strike me in like 30 seconds. I thought that was the end of the world about two weeks ago. And how quickly people perish. Walking down the street, my friend's mom is walking down the street many years ago, walking her dog, and a woman barrels over her in her Ford excursion while she's texting. Killed instantly. Walking her dog in her own neighborhood. And what about our bodies and our organs? They fail. Oh, someday. But I'm, I'm too infatuated with, I'm too much in love with Canaan. I love my sin someday. Maybe when I get older and have a family, then I'll give my heart to Christ. I believe we're always only moments away from a famine or some other disaster that God could bring. Why would you tarry, friend? Why would you tarry? I say pack your things, gather your family, and come to the Savior. Be like Jacob and the patriarchs. Humble yourself. Leave your old life behind. Leave Canaan, turn your back on it, and come to the Savior who sits not in Egypt, but upon His throne of grace in heaven. Make that journey. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sits and waits. Come to His throne and tell Him what you've done. Come to His throne and tell Him your sins and ask Him to blot them out. Let Jesus remove your disgrace by the power of His blood through His wondrous grace. Ask Him to be your Lord and Savior and pledge yourself to His service. Live in His resurrection power. That's the Gospel, friends. That is nothing shy of what Stephen preached and what Stephen desired for the Sanhedrin was for them to be saved. For them to be reconciled unto the Father through the miracle of the Gospel. Free of charge. Repent and believe. That is what he preached, my friends. And he ain't done. We're about to look at Moses and these other examples where it's really the same kind of theme and the same abandonment of God's leaders in these things. He's just going to continue to build a case for them to turn from their sin and repent. And we'll see how they treated him. And I can't believe how early it is. And I'm almost completely done. <laughs> well, talk a heavy sermon like that. Football! You're in Canaan, whoever said that. You need to come out of Canaan immediately. Praise the Lord, right? And you know, for us, guys, 
That's right, man. That is right, because we listen to the gospel presented and our minds go into this default mode of, I've already agreed to that, I've already done that, I'm cool, and that's for those that might be present that don't know Jesus. Are you kidding me? I need to be reminded of what's been done for me every week, because it's just a matter of hours before I forget. And I'll come out, and this is, this is just simple gospel preaching. I come out of this study and this preaching, and I'm totally rejuvenated by those same rock-solid ancient truths, right? Do we really need something new? No, this is what we need to hear over and over and over. Amen? Right? We benefit from it because we marvel at what's been done for us, right? That's how we look at it. This has been done for me. I already get it. I've responded. And I can start fresh and new today. Oh, man, it's so good. I'd like to um, have a time of communion. And man, we're not in an absolute hurry to get through it. And I've always hated that, that I preach so long that, you know, it's a shortened thing. It's abbreviated. I just made up a word. I'm French. We do that. Abbreviated. So let's take some time. Listen, guys. This is family. Let's take some time to reflect upon what we've learned. Let's take some time to reflect upon the cross. And we're going to hang that thing up there. We just got that in here. That's going to be great. I've been wanting that in here since day one. Let's take some time to reflect upon these truths. Let's take some time to reflect upon the cross and what Jesus did in our, on our steed there. Okay? Died that vicarious death, man. A horrific death for sinners. I mean, what an amazing thing he's done. And then he conquered it through his resurrection. Amazing. He's done that and secured that for so many of us. Let's celebrate that through communion. Let's take those elements with great joy in anticipation of his return, but let's take them with great joy as we reflect upon his finished work because that's what we need to do. It's a done deal. We don't have to walk out of here, right, today going, now what do I need to do to earn God's favor? Nothing. He loves you. That right there is the greatest expression of his love, right? If you ever doubt that he loves you, if you ever doubt any of those things, just look at that. Just look at a cross. Some of you have him hanging around your neck. Hold it up in front of your face. Oh, greatest expression of God's love. Let's reflect on those things as we celebrate communion. And I have to warn us that it is for the Lord's people. And so if you're not in Jesus, I pray that you would become in Jesus. Take that journey of Jacob now. Repent of your faith. Pray to the Lord. But it is for the believers, so we have, to, we have to uphold that. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing another song and football. <sighs> Father, you are good to us. I thank you for 